So let's read God's word together. Galatians chapter 4 and from verse 8. Paul writes, Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed about you. Amen. Well, may God uh, bless his word to us this afternoon. Did you ever have one of those days? Um, I've had one of those days today. I got up this morning to look at my notes from the talk I'd written and realized this morning that I'd accidentally saved something else over my talk notes. So this morning, I, I woke to realizing that I had no talk notes for this afternoon. And I spent about half an hour online looking for how to recover a lost document that you've saved over. Nothing made any sense. So I ended up having to rewrite uh, my talk this morning. So it's been one of those days. If I look a bit tired, there's been stress there. The title for my talk today you'll see on the program, is uh, forwards, not backwards. I was worried I was going to say that the wrong way around. Forwards, not backwards. That's the right way around. And that title is taken from verse 9 of the passage that we just read together, um, where Paul talks about these Galatian Christians being on the brink, having made progress, of turning back. How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces or principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You you know if you've been here that we've been biting off some big chunks in Galatians. And I wanted us to slow down and zoom in on a much smaller section today. And part of the reason for that is that I hadn't fully appreciated just how important this section is until I was looking at this during the week and preparing, 
I, I want to go as far as to say to you right at the outset today, I, I think potentially this section is life-changing. None of us want to go backwards. But I often think life can be confusing. When things go wrong, I often wonder whether it was my fault or someone else's fault or whether there was just something in me that meant I just couldn't help what it was that I'd done. It's hard to know sometimes if we are making progress or not, isn't it? Life's messy. There's a whole variety of factors that impact on our lives. But I think Paul here gives us a a way of looking at life and at God and at ourselves that is designed to help us, I think, make sense of some of what is going on. Um, I, I don't know if you've noticed, but the last couple of weeks I've had new glasses. Did you notice that? They're very similar to my old ones. But I didn't realize how much my eyesight had changed until I went to the opticians. And I've, I've been like floating the last two weeks. I can see things. I, I can see you. How about that? You were all a blur before, but now pin sharp. If anyone falls asleep, these glasses, they'll laser in. I think what Paul's doing here in this passage is giving us a kind of pair of glasses or spectacles to look at life through and to determine. I I think Paul here gives us an amazing definition of what the Christian gospel actually is. How you become a Christian, how you make progress as a Christian. So we're going to zoom in and uh, we're going to look at these. We're, We're actually just going to look at the first two or three verses almost, and and we'll kind of touch on the rest of the passage that we read as well. But I want to begin by showing you a surprising contrast in what uh, Paul says here in these early verses. Um, Paul begins by saying that before these Galatians knew God, they they were slaves to things that they thought were God's but weren't God's. Actually, you can see that in verse 8, the very first verse. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. And Paul says that the thing that opened their eyes and broke the chains of their slavery was the fact that they had come to know the true and living God. And that's clear in the first part of verse 9. Now that you know God, or rather are known by God, The problem is, Paul says, is that they were on the brink of going back into slavery. That's the whole point of what he's writing. How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles or forces? You've been in slavery, now you know God. They're in danger of going back to where they were before. But there's a surprise here. Because these people in this particular area had been pagans. They had been attempting to win at life by outright paganism. And the associated immorality that would go with that. Paul gives the impression here that they're going to go back to that. 
But they're not. These people are considering now becoming Jewish. So these Galatians had swapped the low morality of a pagan lifestyle for potentially the high morality of Jewish religion. The shock here, I think, is that Paul describes both of these outcomes as being enslaved. Basically, Paul is saying that being an immoral pagan or a highly religious moral person amounts to exactly the same thing. And he couldn't be more emphatic either, could he? He calls what they are now on the brink of doing weak and miserable. This is the Bible of all the books we could read. This is the Bible we're talking about. Some people believe, don't they, that if you want to make a bad person good, you need to, they, that what they need to get is religion. That'll make the difference. Paul here says, no, 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 no. What you'll be doing is swapping one form of slavery for another form of slavery. So Paul's understanding here of the Christian gospel, I think, is hugely surprising. He contrasts knowing and trusting God with being enslaved. That's his premise. But he sees religion as part of the problem and not part of the solution. He sees religion... Here, here on a spectrum, you could be not religious or very religious. He puts all that in the same category of enslavement. I, I think you'd agree with me. A lot of people would divide the world up, wouldn't they? Into those who are religious and those who are not religious. Paul breaks those categories and actually puts those two groups in the same category and creates another category that he calls knowing God. It's a, it's a stunning um, part of Paul's writing here. Paul sees the world as divided between people who either know God or they're enslaved by something else. Actually, what Paul is contrasting here is the idea of faith in the true and living God and idolatry. Remember, Paul's big idea here is that if you have faith in God, you're going to be moving forwards. If you're an idolater, you're going to be going backwards. Now, I realize that idolatry is a biblical word, so I have three very simple questions this afternoon. They're there on the program. What is this idolatry that Paul speaks of? How does it enslave us? And what's the antidote to it? How can we be free of this enslavement that Paul describes here? Is that simple? Okay. Oh, let's go back. I'll come back to that in a minute. Number one, what is idolatry? Let's look at what Paul says first of all. Paul doesn't use the word idolatry in this passage. But he does use the same Greek word twice to describe the kind of spiritual slavery 
that he's concerned about for these people he's writing to. No one really seems to know how to translate this Greek word that Paul uses here. Um, I don't often do this, and I only know this because I read it in a book, but the original Greek word that you've just seen already, I, I often wonder, you know, whether the original Greeks sounded like scousers because they seem to love words that have a in the middle of them. And scousers love that noise, don't they? <laughs> this word is the word stichion. Um, and you could say it like a scouser, and maybe you'd sound like an early Greek, I don't know. It literally means building blocks or elements. It's a word that describes what stuff is made of. So in, a- in ancient times, for example... You, you can go to the Magna Museum in Rotherham and see this. The ancients would describe the four elements as earth, fire, water, and wind. I was going to say the same one twice then. Um, they, they were the elements that all matter was made up of. That, that's kind of what this word is alluding to. The things that stuff is made from. You get the drift. The first time Paul uses this word is in verse 3, actually. We read that last week, but um, he talks here in verse 3, when you were under age or children, we, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. So the NIV uses three words to translate this one word when it says elemental spiritual forces. And it's the same in verse 9. Paul uses the exact same word, Scouse word, when he says in verse 9, it's the last word of verse 9. No, it isn't. My eyes are bad. It's the, it's the last word before the question mark. He calls them miserable, weak and miserable forces. That's the word, forces. So the question is, is Paul talking about stuff or is he talking about something more sinister? It seems weird that he, he, the NIV here seems to personalise it and talk about forces and spirits. I think there's a massive clue in verse 8. When Paul says, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. In other words, the things they worshipped They were just things. But somehow these inanimate objects exerted such a power over them that Paul says they were enslaved. Hey, hello. The issue with paganism, at least, is that these people had gods for everything. Literally, behind everything or element, if you like, was a god with a little g. If you were a farmer, you would worship the god of farming. If you were a sailor, you'd worship the god of the sea. If you were Sam Brown and running a half marathon with Jai, you'd worship the god of, I don't know, athleticism. If you were a soldier, you'd worship the god of war. If you wanted more sex, you'd worship the God of fertility or beauty. And so it went on. 
These people turned ordinary things into gods and worshipped them. I think Paul knows that this was stupid. I don't want to be rude. But here's the thing. These pagan gods were not real in one sense because they didn't exist. But in another way, they were very real, weren't they? Because they had the power to enslave people. Maybe it was a way for humans to exert control over their lives. If I sacrifice to the God of whatever, then this thing will do what I need it to. If I keep my side of the bargain, if I I can make my unpredictable life more predictable and conform to my wishes and needs and wants, I'll be safe and prosperous and hopefully fruitful. It seems like life was a great big slot machine and you put your dollar in in the hope of the jackpot coming out. These people had so many gods that when Paul went to Athens, he noticed that there was even an altar to the unknown God, as if they were hedging the bets because they'd missed one. Now, you will be aware, I hope, that we don't generally bow down to totem poles or carved images and idols in quite the same way as some of our ancestors maybe did. But I do want to suggest to you this afternoon that we are wired as human beings in the same way. In the sense that we too will always worship what we think will deliver what we think we need to fulfill our lives. I'm going to give you one of my crazy graphics to illustrate this. I hope this works. It makes sense to me. I think in pictures. So here we go. We all have different perceptions, I think, of what is bad or good, what makes us unhappy or happy, what makes us feel incomplete or fulfilled. But whatever we believe will deliver us from one to the other, that thing will be our mini-saviour. That's how this works. The thing that we believe will deliver us from sadness and badness to happiness and goodness, that thing will be our mini-saviour. We will treasure it and love it and cherish it That thing will be for us effectively like a little shrine in our hearts. And I think what Paul realizes as he writes these Galatians here is the fact that actually all of us as human beings are worshippers. You can't divide the human race up into worshippers and non-worshippers. Whether we're religious or not, we're all worshipping something. The question isn't whether we're worshipping, the question is what we're worshipping. And I think living in this world 
it feels like we're living in a massive, bustling marketplace. With little mini saviors or idols crying out from every nook and cranny, pick me, get me, have me, I can make you happy and fulfilled and complete. These idols promise to fulfill all of our dreams, to deliver us, to complete us, even, dare I say it, to save us. Isn't this how advertising essentially works? Advertising often suggests to us that we're incomplete, no marks. But if only we had this product, then we'd be happy and complete. Advertising evokes desire and then offers to provide the solution to that desire. Of course, it's not just our stuff, though. Our idols can be much more subtle. Sometimes it can be the approval of other people that we crave. If I can get that, then I'll be happy. And if I don't get it, I'll be thoroughly miserable. It might be a certain status we aspire to reach. It could be our intelligence or our appearance. It might be our family or some other relationship. Whatever we are relying on in the secret places of our heart, that'll be the thing that we worship. For some of us, it might be a complex combination of a number of these things. I think the reason this passage is so utterly striking is because this is one of the unified, this is one of the, the great unifying themes of the whole Bible. We are either worshipping God or worshipping a substitute mini-God. Let me give you a couple of examples. This idea surely is right there at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Right into paradise, the serpent slithers and suggests to Adam and Eve that God isn't good enough. The original advertising man, (laughs) the serpent comes in and says, you don't want that. He insinuates that God doesn't have their best interests at heart. And the great sin in the Garden of Eden, of course, wasn't just eating a piece of fruit. The real issue was that they made a value judgment about God. They're really saying, God is not enough for us. We're going to go our own way. The thing that makes our sin so serious, that made their sin so serious was that it broke the relationship they had with God. They're really saying to God, we don't believe you. We don't love you. We don't think we need you. We don't want you. Leave us alone. We'll be fine on our own. It's a massive insult to God. They were saying, you're not enough for us. We'll seek our fulfillment somewhere else. Thank you. Think too, secondly, about the Ten Commandments. In the first one, God says to his people, 
you shall have no other gods before me. In the second one, God says, you shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. There's a famous British preacher, no relation, uh, called Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he once defined idolatry in a sermon that he preached like this. An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. An idol is anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to be essential. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that moves and rouses and attracts and stimulates me is an idol. An idol is anything that I worship and to which I give much of my time and attention, energy and money. Anything that holds a controlling position in my life. Lord Jones's point there is that we're either worshipping God or we're worshipping something else. I think Paul's point here actually is even more profound than that. Paul is saying here that if we don't know God and are not trusting and worshipping him, whatever else we may think is going on, the fact is we are in slavery to something else. The problem Paul is highlighting here is that if we are not experiencing the true God, then whatever is replacing him in our lives, in our affections, that thing will be controlling us. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. Another writer says this. Paul is saying here that the only alternative to the gospel is idolatry. The only alternative to worshiping the true God is idolatry. Nobody is an unbeliever in the truest sense of the term. There's no such thing as an irreligious person, really. There is no such thing as a secular person, really. You either believe in the true God... Or else you're a slave to worshipping something else that you trust as a God, but it isn't really a God. Hey, why? Oh, why does idolatry enslave us then? Point number two. In simple terms, to think we worship as our mini saviour will become our master and drive our behavior. Here's the thing. I I, I think we can live often under the misapprehension that idols are bad things. And we we shouldn't love bad things. I, I don't think idols are necessarily bad things. Very often the problem is that is not that we love bad things. The issue is that we love good things so much that we turn them into ultimate things. And then we serve that thing. It means the world to us. 
If we lost that thing, it would feel like our lives were not worth living anymore. During this week, I'm just thinking about this. As you can imagine, I came across a piece of writing where someone very hopefully gave a list of questions. And I've been thinking about these, a list of questions that might help you or me identify these kind of idols in our lives. Twelve questions. Number one, what do you worry about most? Number two, what if you failed or lost it would cause you to feel that you didn't even want to live anymore? Number three, what do you use to comfort yourself when things go bad or get difficult? Where do you run? Number four, what do you do to cope? What are your release valves? What do you do in order to feel better? Number five, what preoccupies you? What do you daydream about? We might say, what do you go to sleep thinking about? Number six, what makes you feel the most self-worth? Of what are you the proudest? Number seven, what do you want to be known for? What would you want your legacy to be? Uh, Number eight, what do you lead with in conversations with other people? Number nine, early on in a new friendship or relationship, what do you want to make sure that people know about you? Number ten, what prayer to God, if it went unanswered, would make you seriously think about turning away from him? Number 11, what do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? And the last one, number 12, what is your hope for the future? Very striking questions. Listen, we we noted at the beginning the shock of Paul putting religion in the same bracket as paganism. On what basis does he do that? I think one of the reasons Paul does that is because even religion can be a form of idolatry. And there's at least a couple of ways that this can work. Um, First of all, and and I'm speaking a little bit here from personal experience, sometimes we start, I think, with the idea that God is not as good or kind as he says he is. Actually, we suspect that he's a little bit mean. He may be even a tad harsh. For a start, that's unbelief. And we've already fallen for the lie in the Garden of Eden that God isn't as good as he says he is. But what that leads to in our lives is that we base our lives then on trying to be moral in order to impress him and earn his favor and perhaps change his mind. (laughs) What we're actually doing is trusting in ourselves rather than God. What that actually implies is that we have a very low opinion of him and a very high opinion of ourselves, doesn't it? 
What we're really saying is God's not that great, but we can, we can compensate for his terrible approach by being really good ourselves. It's the anniversary, isn't it, of the Reformation um, this, this weekend. 500 years ago, Martin Luther said this, if we doubt or do not believe that God is gracious to us, and displeased with us, or if we presumptuously expect to please him only through and after our good works, then it's all pure deception. Outwardly, honoring God, but inwardly, setting up self as a false saviour. A second way religion can become idolatry, I think, is when we try in our lives to use God to get what we really want. It isn't that we love him. We just love what we think he can give to us. We, we love him because of what we think we can get out of him. We play religion like a game. We keep our side. Hopefully God keeps his side by keeping us safe and well. I think even more challengingly for those who are, of, of us who are involved in ministry, even our Christian ministry can become an idol. Ministry leaders can be tempted to love their ministry more than Jesus. There's a great example in the Gospels of Jesus, of, of this. Jesus sends out his disciples, you'll know the story, maybe. And uh, he sends them out on mission to do what he's been doing. And he says, I'm going to give you my power, and you can go and do the same things I've been doing. And they come home amazed, exhilarated. They're bouncing down the street, and they say to Jesus, you'll never believe it. You'll never believe it. It's amazing what we've been able to do by God's power. And Jesus, of course, validates their joy. But do you remember how he gave them a note of caution to you? Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, he says to his own first disciples, be careful that your ministry doesn't bring you more joy than just simply being children of your heavenly father. One writer sums it up like this. If we only rejoice in God because of what he's doing through us and not because of what he's already done for us, we are cherishing our ministry more than him. If our awe for what he's doing through us surpasses our awe for what he's done for us, we've made ministry our mini-God. We, we haven't got time to fully tease this out, but Paul talks about this very thing in the next section, in, in this few verses that we read. He talks about leadership. He talks about his own leadership. And he compares his, his own ministry to that of the people who were trying to lead the Galatian Christians astray. Paul says that they were zealous 
verse 17. But why? Paul says, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. They're up to mischief. (laughs) They don't really love you. Why are they zealous? What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. So these guys are doing ministry not because they love people, but because they want people to like them, approve them, complete them. They just want to boast about them. Paul says he doesn't need them to complete his life and make him fulfilled. He has all the fulfillment he needs from God and Christ. What Paul wants for them is not to brag about them. What does he say in verse 19? My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What he wants for them is for Christ to be formed in them. He doesn't want them to bow down and worship him. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about them. Christ. Those of us who are involved in ministry, those of us who preach even, have to constantly be on guard against this. When I stand up here like this, is it because I love Christ and love you and want the best for you? Or am I more concerned in my heart to be liked, for my message to be appreciated? If ministry is my idol, I'm doing it for me rather than for you or for God. The other thing is that I would never, if that were true, I would never be free to tell you the truth. Because I'd always be worried what you do with that. What does Paul say? Have I now become your enemy, verse 16, by telling you the truth? There's a sense, a good sense, that Paul doesn't care what they think of him because his fulfillment and salvation comes from God in Christ. That means he can be totally honest with them. He's not trying to suck up to them. He isn't trying to flatter them. He doesn't need them in that sense. He is truly liberated to love them. You know what this comes down to in the end, don't you? Our most basic idolatry is not a thing or a relationship or a goal or needing approval. In the end, our greatest danger is that we're constantly erecting a little shrine in our hearts to ourselves. In the end, the big idol behind all the other little idols is me. Martin Lloyd-Jones again said, believers throughout the centuries have recognized this. The ultimate idol about which we have to be so careful is this horrible self. This concern about myself putting myself where God ought to be, everything revolving around myself, 
my interest, my position, my development, myself, and all the things that result from that. We were talking last week about the whole overarching theme of the Bible being this idea that we become so big in our own eyes and God becomes so small. We've swapped the only true God, the real Savior, the only one who can satisfy and fulfill our hearts for all kinds of pretend mini-gods. Oh, enough. I feel too miserable now, so let's stop with point two and get on to point three. Oh, man. I forgot I had slides for that. The antidote. Hey, let's cheer ourselves up with some better news, shall we? Later on in the New Testament, Paul says an amazing thing to some other people who became Christians. How does he describe becoming a Christian? He says this. You turn from idols to serve the living and true God. So this isn't a one-hit thing for Paul. This is the story of the Bible. Why would anyone think of doing that? The answer is that God is not miserable and weak. The answer is that the only thing that will cause us to turn from our idols is the sense that God is infinitely better. And that's why Paul describes this whole, he frames this whole discussion with the Galatians that way. Faith in a God who is good or idolatry, slavery. We either love him or we're enslaved by something less than him. Let's go back to Galatians and see how Paul says this. There's a very interesting phrase in verse 9. Paul says to these Galatians, but now that you know God, and he could have stopped there, now that you know God, how is it that you're turning back? But Paul puts a little, do they have brackets in Greek? He puts a little. Now that you know God, or rather are known by God, they do know God, of course, they've come to know him. But the whole basis for their knowing God is his prior gracious knowledge of them. In the Bible, this kind of knowing is not the same as knowing facts or information. When the Bible talks about knowing in this way, it's talking about something much more intimate, experiential, relational. The truth was that the living God knew them, knew them personally and intimately. Before they even knew him, God's eye had been on them. Actually, not just God's eye, his love had been 
sat upon them. He saw them. He knew them when they were far away from him in slavery. His heart was moved and went out to them. He knew their backgrounds. He knew their circumstances. He knew their hopes and their fears. He knew why they did the things they did, even when they didn't. This Father God knew them. The interesting thing is, doesn't this fit with the whole tone of Galatians? In the end, it's not about them first seeking, doing, knowing something. Paul is constantly stressing God's divine initiative. They're not saved by anything in them. They're saved because God knows them and loves them. And these dear people are in danger of forgetting who they are. How can you swap that for weak and miserable other things? In history, um, again, Martin Luther, he, he had some great illustrations. He gives a great illustration. Galatians was Martin Luther's favorite book. Um, he dedicated his wife. I think he thought he was married to Galatians, the, the, the letter, I mean, not the people. And he said, the Galatians are like a dog running down the side of a river with a massive piece of steak in its mouth. And as the dog runs down the side of the river, it sees a reflection in the river of the steak that's already in its mouth. And the stupid dog opens its mouth to try and grab the steak it can see. That's the reflection. And what happens? The real steak drops out the mouth and the dog loses the reflection and the real steak. That's the Galatians here. They have the real thing in their mouth. God knows them. They know him. And they see a pale imitation of that and they open their mouth to grab it and lose the very thing they've got. Paul's aim here is to make clear that the Galatians already have everything that they need and long for and have been looking for. That's why the previous section is so important. The great father sent his great son into the world, not to condemn them, but to redeem them and save them by dying on a cross in their place. God knows the worst about them and us and he reaches out to us with compassion. And he sends his mighty spirit into their and our hearts to empower and inspire and enable us. So that we would grow in grace and faith and move forwards, not backwards. The antidote in the end, to idolatry is to know that this God loves you. I really want to stress this afternoon as we close that the gospel is not just another form of therapy. We don't need someone to come and give us a leg up to help us achieve what we were already planning to achieve. Our problem's far worse than that. What we need is a saviour who can totally transform 
our self-centered hearts and make them like his generous heart. We need to repent of ourselves and turn to this God believing that he is our good savior and our hope. Let me close with a quote. The way we can displace these idols is if we come to see Jesus Christ as infinitely more beautiful, infinitely more valuable, infinitely more hope-giving and worthy of our affections than whatever it is right now for you that's your saviour, that you're looking for it to give you only what Jesus Christ could give you. It is only when Jesus Christ becomes the predominant affection of your heart that the other things that your heart is giving affection and attention to will be uprooted and replaced. Whatever you've been looking to for significance, whatever you've been trusting in to make you somebody, whoever you've been depending on to make your life worth living, look away from that thing and look to Jesus Christ. Amen.